electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, fintech giving big banks a run for their money and yours. What J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon is worried about with Axios reporter Dan Premack. Really, the current financial regulatory framework is already antiquated. I think when Jamie says that, that part's true. And you say we're going back to the office... Not without some drama. Employers vacillating on vaccine mandates. The Wharton School's Nancy Rothbard says incentives might be the better option. There's a lot of challenges with mandating employees to do anything, quite frankly. Any boss will tell you uh, it's a lot more about persuasion than telling somebody to do something. And CNBC's Jim Cramer says as a business owner himself, he's just trying to follow the rules. We need from the authorities to speak in one voice. Uh, We need states to agree with the CDC. We can't have uh, a million different rules on city, county. Those stories, plus infrastructure spending, AstraZeneca's vaccine abroad, and a new airline? It's Thursday, April 8th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. President Biden pushing back against claims that his $2 trillion infrastructure plan spends too much beyond roads and bridges. He said his plan makes the big investments America will need to compete in coming decades. To automatically say that the only thing is infrastructure is a highway, a bridge, or whatever, that's just not rational. It really isn't. I think the vast majority of Americans think everything from the sewer pipes to the to the, uh, uh, the the sewer facilities to the water pipes. I think they're infrastructure. The president acknowledged that compromise will be necessary. We'll be listening. We'll be open to good ideas and good faith negotiations. But here's what we won't be open to. We will not be open to doing nothing. Inaction simply is not an option. Senate Republicans have called the plan a Trojan horse, opening the spigots for billions in spending on social programs unrelated, they say, uh, to infrastructure. Uh, Meantime, uh, Senator Manchin is going to be the man in the middle, I think, on all of this, especially as it relates to the issue that you're about to talk about, Joe, taxes. Yeah, he'll be the man even assuming reconciliation which they're going to be able to do. They can do it more than once, I guess, they decided. But a lot of the things are going to have to pass that, that um, birdbath test or whatever it is about whether it really is tax-related. And that doesn't allow probably President Biden to do as much as he, as he wants to do. So there could actually be more compromise. 25 looks like it's a done deal now on the, on the corporate tax rate. On the taxes, yeah. 25 on I mean, corporate taxes. Did anybody, have any, yeah. did anybody have any doubt of that? I mean, yeah, it, it, that's I feel like a week this or two is, ago, we, we were all pretty sure that was the deal. This has been scaled back. I, I, you know me. Anything to get scaled back a little, I'm like, well, that's good. That, that's like good news. But anyway, in the meantime, the details 
on the president's plan to raise corporate taxes shows a softening from the version that he campaigned on. At issue is that 15% minimum tax uh, that is aimed at companies that report large profits but very low tax payments. Under the plan, that minimum tax would now only apply to companies with income exceeding $2 billion. $2 billion up from a $100 million threshold that he campaigned on. So that, that cuts out most of the companies, really. The plan, I think there's, I don't know, it only would apply to maybe 40 or 50 companies at that point. The plan would let companies claim uh, tax credits for research, renewable energy, and low-income housing as a result. Oh, here we got it. The administration estimates that just 180 companies uh, would meet the, the income threshold. Uh, and what I say, and just 45 would pay the tax. So many companies would still face sharply higher tax bills, though, if the rest of the president's corporate tax plan is passed, if we did the 21 to 25. But it's a lot of moving parts, a lot of, uh, and, and then you've got the, the very close Senate, 50-50 plus the, the vice president, and the reconciliation, and Manchin, and even uh, cinema in, in Arizona, uh, if you listen right, to right. some of her uh, rhetoric. So it's... It'll be something to watch. I'm surprised they went sausage, all the way down to two billion. Sausage being made. I, 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 you know me. I would have been, maybe you go to a billion. It's a, there's a lot of companies between 100 million dollars and two billion dollars that are not going to get touched as a result of this. I don't want to touch any of them. I, although I think, like when you do something like this, it's going to be hard to argue against it, right? All, all of the arguments that were there before that you'd be hurting small businesses, mid-sized businesses, businesses that yeah. were just getting up there. I mean, you're talking about a 15% minimum tax. It seems hard to argue that those 45 companies wouldn't be able to pay a minimum of 15%. Yeah. I'd rather tax individuals. Tax individuals. Tax individuals. Do what you got to do. Tax the people that work at the corporations, the, the, the fat cats at the corporations. Shareholders, do it that way. Uh, let us, you know, we're, we're competing. We're competing globally more and more every year against China. So I, I just, you know, this is where. So you're, but you're okay with higher taxes than on individuals? Oh, yeah. Uh, if we have to. Okay. Uh, as opposed to if, if, if we got to, if we have to do it. I, I think, you know, my, my default uh, opinion, Andrew, that you know is, is that money by definition is treated better in the private sector. I just would rather have the private sector handling things because it, you know, there are, there are people that have to watch the store and mine the, the you know, the piece of kids. In the government, you get the $1,400 toilet seats and nobody's accountable and one guy, but there's certain things you have to do, but that's I, why they're I just looking to hire should... more people at the IRS. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, those are, I don't, I don't want more that accountability, job. More accountability, more cops yeah. on beat. That's a scary call that you get. If you do get a call from the IRS that says there's policemen coming to your door, they don't Say, call. Okay. No, they don't call. <laughs> they don't do it oh, that way. Yes, those so are when scams. you get the people right. that, that the do that, you can curse, you can do whatever you want to them. It's kind of, uh, it, it's kind of invigorating to be really? able to just, well, to just say back at them, I know you're I not like who you say you, you are. I know you're not who you say you are, and you're not going to scare me. And what you're doing to a lot of elderly people and other people in the, in the country when you call and hear that the police are coming because you haven't paid a tax, yeah. it scares the, 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 the crap out of people. Good for you. Yeah. Well, I don't know you. if I should curse. It might, be, it might be taped, but, uh, but it's really bad. What it's really bad. Call the it's a bad thing? scam. Don't fall for it, Andrew, right. although they, might, they, they probably won't. I know you pay. You don't owe taxes, so you, you know right out of the box that it's not you. Not me. Right. Not me. <laughs>
There was another setback for the AstraZeneca vaccine. The UK's vaccine advisory body says that the jab should not be given to people under age 30 over concerns that it causes potentially deadly blood clots in very rare instances. Separately, the EU's health agency said that it had found possible links between the AstraZeneca vaccine and rare blood clots, but that the shot's benefits continue to outweigh the potential risks. A number of EU countries, including France, Germany and Italy, have resumed AstraZeneca vaccinations after suspending them last month over reports of those blood clots. Germany has still halted the shot in people who are younger than age 60. And Canada has urged people under the age of 55 not to get that shot. And guys, um, this has been probably the most damaging series of events that we've seen with these vaccines to date. Um, this push to get COVID, get it uh, to get the COVID shots out there, um, dealing with this backdrop. And originally, when this was first reported about a month ago, people were saying, no, this is just politics getting in the way. But these have been some of the medical advisory boards that have said yes. The link is something that is potentially yeah. real. Um, and yeah. that's pretty Infant scary and pretty damning. It, it, and infinitesimal. But, it, it, but and if you're over 60, if, if you're over 60, it's worth it. If you're the under risk 30, COVID is much, much greater. Right. But right. If you're under 30, why even if it's an infinitesimal risk, you're, you're probably, you know, I would never say better off getting COVID. But but you, it's it's not worth taking the risk because the chances of you having a really ad serious adverse effect under 30, even with the virus, probably less than the chance you should take with, a, with that. Uh, I mean, the AstraZeneca, the AstraZeneca vaccine has been uh, besieged by so many problems, but this is the one, the only one that we've heard about with these links to blood clots right. like this. And, and this is the one that so much of the globe was kind of relying on and hoping that they would be able to use to roll out in lots of countries because it is, it doesn't have some of the issues that other vaccines have in terms of um, how cold you have to keep it things along those lines. So there had been lots of countries that were lined up waiting for this. It also happens to be a big issue in the EU where, you know, not in the UK, they've done a very good job of vaccinations in the UK, but in the EU, they've had lots of problems and resurgences of the virus as a result. You saw France shutting down, Germany talking about shutting down and then politically getting so much pushback from that. But uh, this is the, the news that we've heard again and again with AstraZeneca has been concerning, and this is just one more case of that. The stock, however, this morning up by about 3.4 percent. We should say that meantime, in the United States, the CDC says that nearly 25 percent of adults in this country are fully vaccinated at this point. More than 42 percent of adults and more than 76 percent of seniors have received at least one dose of a two-dose regimen. So you are now talking about 110 million people here who have at least one dose, 64 million who have been fully vaccinated. Yep. But then now there's a new warning from the CDC's uh, director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, said that hospitals are seeing more and more younger adults, hospitals, younger adults in the 30s and 40s admitted with the severe, uh, a severe case of COVID. She said this comes as more places in the U.S. are reporting these variants some are just more transmittable. Some could be more lethal as well. Dr. Walensky urged people to continue taking precautions uh, even after they get vaccinated. A new U.S. airline, Burbank, California-based Avello, launching today with an emphasis on underserved markets in the western United States. 
Avello is the country's first all-new airline in nearly 15 years, and its launch comes as leisure travel is picking up. For now, the company is going to be serving 11 smaller airports, including Eugene, Oregon, and Grand Junction, Colorado. It'll start flying at the end of this month. And, Joe, probably a good time to be opportunistic as some of the big carriers kind of pulled back from those smaller regional markets to focus on their core uh, bigger markets. Opportunity. I like that idea. Um, Sorkin, you're an Aspen guy. Grand Junction, how do you get to Aspen? You can't get there from here, right? And, and I think Grand Junction would make a little bit of there's There's a couple of places out there that you want to be. Uh, Telluride, Crested Butte, Aspen, and it's yep. just not the normal, easy Denver. I mean, it'd be easier to go to Salt Lake City and drive for a half hour and be in the best snow around. You so, know that's my, that's my move. Yeah, that, that's your move. That's your move. That's uh, my move. But so I much easier. And Eugene, Oregon, I don't, you know, I don't know what, I, I only know one thing it's about Eugene. It's great up there. I've been up there, yeah, too. It's beautiful. But it, it, the, but, the two, too many different you flights you got to take. For those of us who, who are not departing from Teterboro, it's tough. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say something about Eugene. I only knew one thing about Eugene when I was younger, and that was where, I don't know, the really good marijuana up there, right? Uh, but I think you can get that everywhere uh, now, uh, basically. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, try, out your, try right outside your window. Yeah. Really? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. Next on Squawk Pod, rise of the fintechs. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon says banks have a smaller role in finance, and the change happened fast. Analyst Rebecca Felton. Just as late as three years ago, 50% or more of, of financial institutions didn't have a fintech strategy in place. It's looking inside ourselves and, and being less cumbersome. And Axios' is Dan Premack on the surprises in the speed. Grab, which starts as the southeastern ride hail company, basically an Uber of Singapore, its financial services piece is now arguably bigger than its ride hail piece. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. The big banks, the Wall Street legacy crowd, are facing big competition from fintech. On yesterday's pod, we told you about J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon's annual letter to shareholders. In 66 pages of Big Think, ideas about the financial industry, the economy, how we live, Dimon hit on a key shift in the way money moves around the globe. He wrote, banks are playing an increasingly smaller role in the financial system. How's that? Competition is heating up from big tech leaders in Silicon Valley, Facebook, Google, Apple, and retailers like Amazon and Walmart around the nuts and bolts of running financial transactions. And fintech leaders, publicly traded ones like Square, PayPal, and Visa, have stocks that have easily outperformed traditional banks like J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Citi over the past three years. Square alone is up 443%. JPM up about 40% in that time. Citi, just three and, like just about every story we do these days, because COVID. 
The pandemic of the last year brought significant changes to consumer behavior. And doing more things digitally, especially sending money, paying a bill, or a contactless purchase, is much more normal. The trust level has shot up across generations. For more on fintech versus financials, here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joining us right now are Rebecca Felton, senior market strategist at Riverfront Investment Group, also Dan Primack, business editor at Axios. Rebecca and Dan, it, it was a fascinating letter to read and to see him so explicitly call out uh, the fintechs, but also the regulatory regime, which he believes has allowed them to thrive in a way that he hasn't. What did you think of that, Rebecca? Well, thank you so much for having me this morning. And and certainly you can't disagree with what he said. It, it, it is an unfair playing field, if you will, because these companies don't have to have bank charters. They don't have to go through the regulatory hoops that we as financial institutions do. But to say that the fintechs are the the only competitive threat, perhaps we ourselves as an industry are a competitive threat to ourselves because there have been studies shown that just as late as three years ago, uh, 50% or more of, of financial institutions didn't have a fintech strategy in place. So it, it's more than just the fintech uh, problem. It's it's looking inside ourselves and, and being less cumbersome. Dan, is, is, is it that the banks are not innovative enough or is it that the banks can't be innovative because regulators have told them they can't be innovative? I think it's probably more the former. And I'm sure Jamie Dimon in particular would object to that because J.P. Morgan certainly has been, uh, you know, as far as Wall Street goes, has been pretty good when it comes to tech innovation. The, the thing I didn't quite get out of Jamie's letter was what specifically he wants done about it, because on the one hand, he complains that the fintechs aren't being regulated like the banks are. On the other hand, in other spots, he kind of wants the banks to be a bit less regulated. So, so I didn't see specific things he wanted in there when it came to fintech. When you think, though, of the successes of the visas, of the PayPals, of the squares, do you think that there is real risk embedded in those businesses that's not being accounted for today, Rebecca? Well, I think that is hard to say. The the speed of the growth, the speed or the growth of the demand, the tipping point that we saw because of COVID and and the now uh, reliance of consumers and small businesses on these platforms, I think that that is going to be something that will determine over the years to come. Dan, you look at a, an Ant Financial, you look at some of these big businesses. Do you think there's ever a possibility that they become so big that they end up buying a bank? Or, or is the regulatory regime of the banking system unto itself so unattractive that you would never do that? I think it's probably the latter, right? I, 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 don't, I just don't see them wanting, you know, not that, they could, not that they would necessarily be able to afford a J.P. Morgan, but I just don't think they would want the headache of it. You know, most of these fintechs, you know, kind of they, they grow up as startups. They're kind of used to being able to be not completely unregulated. They are still financial services companies, but, but to have the really strong hand of government. I think the thing this really shows, though, is, we're 10 years plus since Dodd-Frank, and so many of these businesses we're talking about either didn't exist at all at that time or were just starting out. Re really, the current financial regulatory framework is already antiquated. I think when Jamie says that, that part's true. So, Rebecca, if you're Dan Shulman running a, a firm like PayPal, does, does a letter like Jamie Dimon scare the heck out of you because all of a sudden there's going to be a new conversation uh, about regulation uh, in this space? Well, as slow as any government body moves, I would think it wouldn't scare him so much in the near term. And probably it would be comforting to know that the status as disruptor is, is, is a good one and is growing. So um, I don't know that I would be as concerned about it as, as pleased with the success. Dan, what did you make of the, the other thing that, that struck me about that letter 
was the inclusion of Apple and Walmart in his competitor set to some degree. I mean, he talks about Walmart being a competitor set to Silicon Valley, but then he effectively says that Silicon Valley is a competitor set to him. He's right. And he's right. He's he's absolutely right. Uh, Look, I mean, when you think of Walmart, when you think of Apple, right, you can use you can use your iPhone now to pay for things, not by connecting it necessarily to a credit card or to a bank, just by connecting it via Apple's own financial services. Uh, You know, take a take a company and it's not in the U.S., but take a company like Grab, right? Grab, which starts as the Southeastern ride hail company, basically an Uber of Singapore, its financial services piece is now arguably bigger than its ride hail piece. So, so tech companies have, have figured out quickly how to move into fintech, and Jamie's kind of acknowledging right. that. Well, Dan, Dan and Rebecca, but uh, let me go to Dan first on this. Decentralized banking, what they call DeFi in the business, do you think that that is the future? And what, what does it actually say, if, if it is, uh, about, about a, a business like J.P. Morgan? I'm not sold it's the future. I think it is part of the future. I, I do think when it comes to banking, that there is still a value to a decentralization as simple as literally having somebody to yell at when things go badly. Uh, so I, I think it's probably part of the future. I, I'm not sold that it is the future. Rebecca, you, you buying some of these coins being used in the DeFi world? No, not not yet. Um, I think that the transaction costs are still going to be a, a problem. If you go to Starbucks and buy a $4 cup of coffee and have to pay $15, $20 for that transaction, I think that that's going to be eye-opening and perhaps prohibitive in the near term. Okay. Uh, we're going to leave it there. Hopefully we won't be using, or I don't know, hopefully. But yes, I don't want to spend an extra 15 bucks on my already expensive uh, Starbucks uh, coffee in the morning. So nice to see both of you. Thank you. Thank you. You bet. Next on Squawk Pod, to mandate or not to mandate, employers want to reopen offices. But will they, should they, can they require vaccinations and vaccine status from their workers? Chair of UPenn's Wharton School, Nancy Rothbard, says it's a tricky business. You have a a lot of uh, lack of engagement and uh, people wanting to leave uh, an establishment when they feel that people are imposing things on them. Hold on, but you it's, recognize can, can that the healthcare crisis has imposed a huge burden and cost on everybody in this country, right? Talking about talk about, impo- talk about imposing costs on people. And some input from CNBC's own Jim Cramer, a small business owner himself. City has different Agreed. rules, state has different rules. Uh, I don't know. I want to follow whatever rules. I don't want the health department to close my place. All that right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Joe Kernan along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. A handful of colleges are requiring COVID vaccines for students. But when it comes to the workplace, the issue is, well, murkier. Meg Terrell joins us now with the latest on this story. Meg. 
Hey, Andrew, and it continues to evolve, but we have heard of a lot more colleges and universities saying they're going to require vaccinations for students in the fall than we have heard from employers. Really, only a handful of employers have come out and said they're going to require vaccinations. Only three we've heard from. One, a hospital in Texas, uh, one, a company in Connecticut, and one, a healthcare IT firm in California called Tiger Connect, which says it will require vaccinations for employees to come on site, but they're not requiring it if people want to work Uh, remotely. But guys, there was one university in Texas that had put a vaccine requirement into place. But then after Governor Abbott in Texas issued an executive order against vaccine passports, they actually had to retract that plan to mandate vaccines. Governor Abbott uh, tweeting earlier this week, Texans shouldn't be required to show proof of vaccination and reveal private health information just to go about their daily lives. Don't tread on our personal freedoms. A similar executive order being put into place in Florida. But guys, we checked with that hospital in Texas to see if this executive order affects their plan to require vaccines, and they said it didn't. We talked with some lawyers about the legal issues around around this for employers. Um, And here's what Glenn Cohen from Harvard had to say about what employers might do. Employers, I think, are a little bit more afraid of the backlash, in part because they have end users who are customers and they're worried about the idea that their customers may have strong opinions about these vaccine mandates. So, guys, it's not so much the legal issues necessarily. Two lawyers we spoke with thought that it is legal to do this, even under emergency use authorization, although that might complicate things. It's that it really just doesn't seem popular. Andrew? Okay. Uh, Meg Jarrell, appreciate it. Becky? We are, Andrew. In fact, joining us right now to talk about vaccinations and returning to the office is Nancy Rothbard. She's the chair of the management department at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. And, Professor, thanks for being here. You're not a a healthcare expert. You're not a legal expert, but you are a business expert. And you come at this from a little bit of a different perspective. Um, These are questions that employers are considering right now. And you say that there's even deeper implications with some of these things. What, What do you think? when workplaces start thinking about what they ask of the, of their employees and how far they can dig into this? Thanks, Becky. These are great questions. It's really a dilemma that I think a lot of employers and employees are facing around whether to ask their employees to get vaccinated, whether to ask them to reveal whether they've been, at, they, they've been vaccinated. In fact, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, of, challenges with mandating employees to do anything, quite frankly. Any boss will tell you uh, it's a lot more about persuasion than telling somebody to do something. And so trying to really uh, incentivize people to to get vaccinated, I think, is going to be a much more popular route than mandates. In terms of asking employees whether they've been vaccinated, that's also a really tricky question. And it's one that has to do with people's preferences about what they reveal about their personal information in the workplace. People have a lot of varied preferences around that. Some people really like to integrate their work and their family lives to reveal personal information in the workplace, talking to their colleagues about what's happened on the weekend or revealing it on their social media pages. Other people are much more private about that. And so, you know, that that general... Um, difference uh, amongst people around their preferences for revealing personal uh, information in the workplace really will play a big role here, I think, in people's comfort with revealing their vaccine status. Professor, this gets to a really tricky issue, though. There, There are people who feel very strongly on both sides of this issue, those who think you absolutely have the right to find out 
if people around you have been vaccinated. Others who say, forget it, this is my personal information. But by choosing this route, aren't employers basically siding with the with one side of the argument? That's the argument who says, I, I shouldn't have to tell you anything. So it's a great question. I think that there are ways to do this more privately uh, where where you you might want to take an employee aside and say, look, you you have um, you, ha- have you been vaccinated? Not doing it in a public way, and if you haven't, then we need to make alternative arrangements, right? Because we also have the safety of the people around us. And so, I think if you're going to ask people to reveal what may be very private information, okay. you want to make sure you do it in a way that they feel more comfortable that that information won't be shared broadly. One problem with that, though, is, you know, this is the problem we've been dealing with through this whole pandemic is not really knowing what's going on. You can point to schools, you can point to workplaces and the information you get as somebody whose whose child is there or somebody who's sitting in a workplace is very vague. You never know who around you may or may not have been exposed um, when a workplace says somebody's out, um, uh, when they say that somebody's, there's been COVID, you don't know what you are sending yourself into. And if you have people at home who are at risk, that raises lots of questions. I mean, this is not an issue that's the same as a seatbelt law where you're protecting yourself. In this situation, if you haven't gotten a COVID vaccine, you could be, as somebody sitting next to them, exposed to anybody who brings something into the workplace. Absolutely. I mean, this is a public health issue, right, which is why I think we're seeing a lot of uh, the legal experts telling us that it, it may be legal to 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 go with mandates. But uh, I think that the issues here around public health and safety can be resolved in different ways. Vaccines are one solution. Other solutions are frequent testing and, you know, making sure that you do contact tracing and the like. And so, and mask wearing. And so there, there are there are different solutions that can be uh, pursued, you know, rather than necessarily uh, having people um, mandating a, a vaccine. Professor, can I, 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 I have to say, I, I have a very pointed view about this. I, I 100% disagree. I think it's a disgrace that, that, that uh, vaccines are not going to be mandated by businesses. Uh, businesses have been asking uh, the taxpayer, uh, the U.S. government, for trillions of dollars in help over the past year. Uh, small businesses have been asking for help. Uh, individuals have been asking for handouts. Uh, all sorts of things have been going on. There's a huge cost to this health care uh, dilemma that's, that, that's taken place over the last year. And the idea that employers shouldn't be requiring, af- after, after taking money from taxpayers, to try to help end this pandemic seems to me to be absolutely ludicrous. Well, I think that that is a very, you know, a, a very uh, interesting uh, viewpoint and a one, one that I think that others share. However, I think that employers are being very practical and pragmatic uh, regarding this mandate, right? It's, it's not that, um, I think most employers are saying that they may not want to mandate something because they know that mandates don't often work as well. People have reactants against mandates. You know, you, you have a, a lot of uh, lack of engagement and uh, people wanting to leave uh, an establishment when they feel that people are imposing things on them. However, I agree that this is a different situation in that there is a but public... You, hold on, but you recognize that the health hold on, but you recognize that the healthcare crisis has imposed a huge burden and cost on everybody in this country, right? Talking about, talk about, impo- talk about imposing costs on people. Yes. 
Absolutely. And I think that that I agree that this is a different type of situation in that there is a public safety component to it. The, the term herd immunity implies that there is a collective cost to this, not just an individual decision that people are making when they are choosing to get vaccinated. However, I think employers are reacting to the fact that when we mandate people, when we do anything like mandatory training uh, in, in the workplace, when we do things, that I have a paper that's called mandatory fun. People do not even like having mandated fun imposed on them if they're not feeling that that is legitimate in the workplace. And so people don't react I well. I will tell you one things. thing. They react better to incentives and to encouragement, professor, uh, as well as a hey, collective sense. I will tell you, we have mandatory we have mandatory training at our workplace, and I, I will tell you, eighty percent of the people would not do it if it wasn't mandated. So, I mean, you, you may have better reactions, you may not like it, but the only way I'm yes. doing it is if you make me do it, literally make me do it. I agree, and, and that is often why we have mandated. We have lots of things, by the way, that are mandated, right? So, for example, you have a mandatory requirement to prove that you have a W-2, right, if you're going to get paid, right? So there there right, are right. lots of things that are mandated. This is a great conversation. Sure. We really appreciate your time. So we'll have you back again soon. Thanks for your time, Professor. Thank you. Jim Cramer is standing by. And Jim, we've been debating back and forth today and for a long time at this point about whether or not workplaces should actually require the vaccination. You are no talking head in this game. You're, you're a small business owner who's thought an awful lot about this. Where do you come down on this debate? Well, uh, this is a very complex debate, and I'll tell you one of the reasons why is is that I was saying that, listen, maybe to get more people uh, in my restaurant that's about to open, we have to vaccinate people because the city's not going to let us have as many people. But the backlash is horrible, and already uh, the restaurant has just gotten horrible reviews. We're not even open. Uh, It is just a very complex issue. Uh, I was hoping to get some clarity from both the city and from the CDC uh, in the same way that I am sure if you were Frank Del Rio, who runs uh, Norwegian Cruise, he he has said, listen, we're going to vaccinate the crew. We're going to vaccinate all the passengers. We're not going to let any children on. We're going to operate at 60 percent. We're going to change our air filtration. And he can't get a call back from the CDC. So, I mean, I think a lot of this depends on both local regulations and CDC. And it should be out of our hands. I, I don't want to make any decisions that would ever upset anybody. Uh, I just want to follow the rules. And I think a lot of people just want the rules. I'm not going to limit anybody vax. You can continue to give me half star or one star. I, I, I don't know what to do, Becky. We need from the authorities to speak in one voice. Uh, we need states to agree with the CDC. We can't have uh, a million different rules on city, county. We don't know what to do. And, and Jim, I would say that's indicative of this entire pandemic, yes. this Pandemic has brought out people who have such strong opinions on both sides. That the politicians have kind of cowered from making any decisions and kind of punted and said, you guys figure this yes. all out. And that, that, that has been crazy to watch just every step along the way, the, kind of the lack of guidance. And oh. the, yeah, you figure it out. Yeah, I mean, I just want to do what allows the most people to enjoy a restaurant. Uh, city has different Agreed. rules. State has different rules. Uh, I don't know. I want to follow whatever rules. I don't want the health department to close my place. So I have no idea what we're supposed to do. Thanks, Jim. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And tweet us anytime at Squawk CNBC. Tell us what you think. 
We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 